0: Good morning. I'm a little uh, uncertain about how to do what we're going to do this morning. Um, we've been talking for the last three weeks about God's delights, the things God delights in. So far, it's been fairly easy to uh, understand why He delights in these things. So we talked about God's delight in His beautiful and majestic Son. Talk about God's delight in His beautiful and majestic creation. Talk about God's delight in His beautiful and majestic name. Like I said, it's, it's pretty easy to see why God delights in these things. It's no mystery. They are delightful. But this morning we are going to consider a profound mystery. We are going to be looking at something that will... I think, uh, challenge our understanding, stretch our thinking about life and reality. We're going to be looking at the one delight of God that is very, very difficult to comprehend. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 53. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking, first of all, at verse 10. Isaiah 53, 10. I want you to listen to my translation. It's a little different than yours, especially if you're reading from the New International Version. Go ahead and compare the two, but listen carefully. Isaiah 53, 10. Yahweh was delighted to crush Him and to cause Him to suffer. And though God makes His life a guilt offering, He will see His offspring and prolong His days, and the delight of the Lord will prosper in His hand. The New American Standard uh, translates that first line there says uh, the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief but the translators of the new international version cannot bring themselves to follow that thinking they cannot imagine the father delighting to crush the son and so they change it a little. They say it was God's will for the Son to suffer as if it was kind of His reluctant, resigned acceptance. But the word there means delight, pleasure. Everywhere else in the book of Isaiah, the New International Version translates that word as delight or pleasure or desire. I'm sympathetic with the translators of the New International Version. It is very difficult to deal with the idea that the Father delighted to crush the son it's very hard to understand it's shocking perhaps even faith shaking but we don't grow in our understanding by changing scripture we grow by allowing scripture to break through our limited thinking but what can this mean did the father delight to put the son to death did the father put the son to death I read a book by a guy who uh, ministered in, in prisons in Illinois. A lot of the men that he ministered to were murderers. And one day he had a group of them together and he said, Who killed Jesus? One guy said, Well, the Jews did. Somebody else said, No, it was the soldiers. Somebody said, Well, it was Judas's fault. Somebody else who'd obviously been to Sunday school before. He said, No, all of mankind killed Jesus. But listen to the minister's reply. He said all of mankind working together with all the demons of hell would not have even a small fraction of the power to kill the creator of the universe, the king of glory. Now all of these were the means. But when we face what scripture says, his father killed him. He caused him to suffer. The prisoners were speechless. How can this Peter says in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Jesus himself acknowledges that he came to fulfill that plan, knowing exactly what it involved. He said, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This is command I received from the Father. You see, no one could have taken Jesus' life. And the Father never would have taken his life against his will. But that was the Father's plan for Jesus to die. The Father commanded it and was pleased with it. Paul tells us in Ephesians that the death of Jesus was a fragrant aroma to the Father. Well, there's obviously more to understand here. Now, how could it possibly be that the God who delights in everything that is beautiful and good and right, how could this God delight to crush his son? Well, let's back up. Let's back up to the beginning of Isaiah 53. Let me read just the first three verses. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like the root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Isaiah starts by saying, now who can believe this? Who can really understand what the hand of the Lord has done here? And then verse 2, he tells us that when Jesus came to earth dressed in human form, there was nothing remarkable about his appearance. He looked like an ordinary person. Now the irony of this is enormous. Here is the most beautiful, majestic, important, valuable person in the universe and nobody's particularly interested nobody is particularly desiring to be around him nobody's attracted to him 3 weeks ago we talked about god's delight in the son well that was all about was exploring how from eternity past the father and the son have delighted to acknowledge and to express each other's glory Now from that discussion you may remember what glory means, but let me remind you. The simplest uh, meaning of the word glory is importance and value. You glorify something or someone by recognizing and acknowledging and being affected by their importance and their value. You, you, You glorify a rare gem by being amazed at its beauty and stunned by its cost. I can remember standing in a museum in Cairo and looking at the uh, golden death mask of Tutankhamun. Now here was this thing, solid gold, beautifully crafted, 3,000 years old, exquisitely rare and valuable, priceless. It was awe-inspiring to stand there and look at it and and to think about its worth and, and just to contemplate it. And by my awe... I was glorifying it. I was recognizing and acknowledging its beauty and its value. See, the fact is that from eternity past, the Father and the Son have enjoyed the intense delight of, of seeing each other, recognizing each other's beauty and value, expressing that to each other, expressing that through creation. They have enjoyed recognizing each other's beauty. Value. They each see each other's perfect goodness, each other's intense beauty, profound wisdom and intelligence, unblemished love. You know, the Father is not easily impressed, but when He looks at the Son, He sees someone whose goodness and and purity and, and, and worth takes His breath away. And the Son... He sees the 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 perfections that match and parallel his own. When the father looks at the son, he sees all of the beauty and wisdom and goodness of himself perfectly reflected. You know everything that on this earth that is of value, everything that is beautiful. Everything that is truly good derives its value or its beauty or its goodness, in that somehow, in some small way, it reflects God, the Creator, who is the source of all goodness and and, and beauty, value. You see, when the Father looks at the Son, He sees the, the glory of all of those things perfectly reflected. Three weeks ago, when we talked about this, someone came up to me afterwards and said, Isn't it rather vain of God to be so impressed with Himself? Now, that's a perfectly understandable question. It also has a perfectly simple answer. You see, for us to be that impressed with ourselves would be vanity, because at best we are a very poor reflection of God's character, God's beauty. For us to worship ourselves would be the height of idolatry, the height of foolishness. You see, for us to worship God is appropriate because He is worthy of it. He is that beautiful. He is that good. He is that wise. We aren't. For us to worship ourselves is to believe and act on a lie. However, for God to, to find ultimate value, to glory in anything less than Himself would also be a lie. See, for God to acknowledge His own wisdom, His own beauty, His own goodness, is what Scripture calls righteousness. Righteousness means that you you base your life and your thinking on the truth. It measures up to the standard of what it really is, of reality. See, for the Father to delight in His perfect reflection... In the sun is nothing more than the honest, objective, and accurate recognition of the most valuable, beautiful thing that there is. That's why it was so shocking when Jesus came to earth that nobody valued him. Nobody recognized his beauty. Nobody saw through the external and saw what they had in front of them. In fact, Verse 3 tells us that we despised Him. We esteemed Him not. We rejected Him. Again, that is shocking in light of everything we've talked about the last several weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about God's delight in creation. Now, why does God delight in creation? Well, because creation reflects and expresses a little bit of God's glory. When we look at creation, we see some of God's attributes of who He is and what He is like. We see a hint, a glimpse of His His creativity and His power. When we look at the, the vastness and the majesty, the magnificence of His creation. We glimpse His intelligence when we begin to explore the intricacy and the complexity of His designs. Begin to catch a glimpse of His goodness as we, we see the beauty and the subtlety in everything that He has done. You see, creation was intended to reveal something of God's glory. And creation does that by doing what it was created to do. Psalm 19, David tells us that the sun and the moon and the stars glorify God by being where they're supposed to be at the right time. By doing what He created them to do. See, and as human beings, man was created. And and created to play a specific, unique role in glorifying God. Because man of all the creatures was given the intelligence to consciously and, and to intelligently explore and see and value And express the glory of God to see his goodness and his wonder and to be in awe and and, and to acknowledge that and to express that the planets revolve around the Sun but they have no thought now they glorify God they bring delight to God because they express something of his creativity and his power but they are not in wonder of God's creativity and power even the other animals, who've been given a certain level of intelligence, uh, can enjoy and delight in, uh, and and celebrate God's creation as they as they enjoy their environment. But they cannot be in awe. They cannot marvel at the God who created that environment. By the time I was on a boat from Long Beach to Catalina Island. as the boat was going up and down in the waves, right next to the boat it was a school of six dolphins, arcing out of the water and diving back in, keeping pace exactly with the boat. And I have absolutely no doubt that they were fully and consciously enjoying what they were doing. They were having fun. They were delighted with the speed, with the race. They were delighted with their freedom. They were delighted just with the water. You see, those dolphins, as much as they glorify God by doing what He created them to do, as much as they express in their design and in their character, as much as they express of God's goodness and generosity and delight, those dolphins are not able to see in their play the hand of God at work. They're not able to be in awe of their glorious Creator. see, humans were created uniquely of all of the creatures of earth to be able to see and to understand and begin to appreciate and marvel at and be in awe of, be overwhelmed by God and His glory and the beauty of what He has done and how He has put things together. You see, that is what humans were created for, to consciously explore God's glory and to express it to acknowledge his beauty and his magnificence and his subtlety and his wisdom and his goodness and his generosity that is why we exist that is what we were created to do to see God and to thrill at what we see and to express that in praise you see that's how we glorify God That's what life is all about. But again, what did Isaiah 53, verse 3 tell us? We despised Jesus. We did not esteem Him. We didn't recognize His beauty and His value. We treated the most valuable thing in the universe as if it were dirt. In the presence of the most beautiful thing that there is, we sat and picked our teeth. In the, we treated the most intelligent, wise being that exists as if he were naive and self-deluded. See, And that is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is to fail to recognize and to acknowledge God's wisdom and His beauty and His goodness. The essence of sin is to fail to recognize and acknowledge His glory. Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is what sin is, falling short of the glory of God. Romans 1 Paul describes explains this argument. You don't need to turn there, but listen as I read some verses starting with verse 20. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him. Verse 23, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made in the likeness of mortal man. Verse 25, They exchanged the truth of God For a lie, and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever to be praised. Amen. You see, the basic sin of mankind from the garden all the way through is to exchange living for the glory of God for living for the glory of something else. For most of us, like, like it was with Adam, we live for our own glory. Trying to magnify our own importance and amplify our own beauty and value. See, we've exchanged the truth for a lie. We've exchanged living for God's glory, which is, which is enriching. It's infinite. It, it is awe-inspiring. It is joy-producing. And we've settled for living for the glory of something else, for ourselves, or or for our country even, or for our families, or or for nature, or anything but God. The glory of these other things, especially the glory of ourselves, is inadequate, it's puny, it's degrading. It's ultimately joyless. And you see, having made that exchange, choosing others' glory over God's, All the rest of the things that we call sin flow out of it. They're produced by this basic sin of falling short of God's glory. The rest of Romans 1, Paul explains that too. Let me start reading verse 28. Just listen. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. See, as soon as we get our eyes off of God, onto ourselves, our thinking no longer reflects His. Our character no longer reflects His. Our behavior no longer reflects His. And regardless of our intentions, no matter how good our intentions might be, the result is we are ultimately destructive to the very design of creation. We can't help it. The fruit is always evil. Last week we uh, talked about God's delight in His name. How throughout history He has demonstrated the priority of magnifying and honoring His name. Every time He saved His people, He was very careful to tell them that He did not do it for their sake, but for the sake of His name. Because God's name reveals and represents and expresses who He is and everything about Him, what He's like. So there's nothing more valuable. And God is passionately committed to His name. We have a problem here. Here is a God who is passionately committed to His name while a part of His creation is doing everything it can to cheapen that name, to denigrate it, to compete with it for glory. See, by our very priorities, by the things that we want out of life, by the desires that control us, by the things that bring us joy or pain, by our attitudes, we demonstrate... That God and His name don't mean much to us. By our attitudes and our behavior, daily we insult God. Daily we demonstrate that He is not the most important thing in our lives. That we do not love Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. So what is God to do with this? He can't just look the other way and say it doesn't matter. For Him to do that would be to lie. For Him to do that would be for Him to exchange the truth for a lie and He would become unrighteous. Remember, righteousness means living according to the standard of what is true, what really exists, the standard of reality. It means valuing that which is valuable. Living for what's worth living for. Treating uh, 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 as worthy that which is truly worthy. So righteousness for God as well as for us is living for and expressing, recognizing the glory of God. The greatest travesty, the, the, the ultimate outrage in the universe is our attempts to deface the most beautiful and to, to diminish the most valuable, to despise the most important person there is. This is far worse than any other act of vandalism or violence. Because, see, every other act of vandalism or violence ever perpetrated is merely an outworking of this and a reflection of this. I have an article that I keep in a book that I read every three years. I keep this article to remind me of the horror of my sin. Now, I cannot read this article without crying, so let me just tell you what it's about. It's about a man who kidnapped a sweet, beautiful three-year-old girl. He used her for his sexual pleasure and then when he was finished, he threw her in the pit of an outhouse to die. The disregard that this man showed for that precious girl, the 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 marring of her innocence, the scarring of her life is an outrage almost beyond comprehension. Well, it is beyond comprehension. I have two girls of my own, and I know how precious and valuable and beautiful their lives are. And knowing that just increases the horror of this outrage. And I don't say this lightly or easily, but the horror of this desecration is merely a reflection a glimpse, a byproduct of the horror of our disregard for God's glory. That is the most basic and fundamental sin of the universe. And the fact that my own sins, my own God belittling attitudes and actions, don't horrify me and crush me like this man's sin it is only testimony to the fact that my eyes are darkened and I don't see God and his supreme beauty and his goodness and his purity and I don't see the ugliness of what sin does in attacking that beauty trying to mar that innocence and that purity but for God who sees everything clearly to act as if man's betrayal and all of the, the horrible and the destructive acts of violence and perversion which flow out of that betrayal. For God to act like that doesn't matter. It would be for God to insult and denigrate the Son whom He loves values above all things. It would be for God to exchange the truth for a lie. It would be for God to desecrate, to, to insult the most holy and pure thing by his attitude, by his actions. It would be for God to become a sinner like we are. There would be no righteous God. There would be no hope. But again, what is God to do? Well, if he consulted me, I would tell him to wipe out mankind and start over. Condemn us all to the hell that we have created and create somebody worthy of his love. But as logical and reasonable as that solution sounds to me, it falls short of His glory. It falls short of His goodness and His wisdom and His love. See, God has a far more glorious plan. One that uh, goes well beyond the limits of my comprehension. Listen to verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verses 7 through 9 go on to uh, describe the fact that the plan that Jesus and the Father executed, Jesus willingly participated in. This was not imposed on Him. This was His plan too. And the plan was for Him to die, to be cut off from the living, to have no human possibility of descendants, to to be given a grave among the wicked. But the heart of this plan is right there in verses 5 and 6. Let me read those again. Verse 5, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, the plan is for the punishment that is due us, that we deserve. To fall on Jesus. And somehow in that process, we are changed. We are healed. See, Jesus was punished in our place. And by that, we are made whole. Now this is incredible. This is hard to fathom. This morning, with the time we have left, let's not spend it exploring how this works. But instead, recognizing and acknowledging the glory of it. First of all, this plan demonstrates beyond question God's commitment to the value and worth of His name and His glory. Vindicating His name and His glory was worth the life of His Son. And there is nothing more valuable. See, God could not look the other way. As if it didn't matter that we insult His glory and cheapen His name. He couldn't act as if that was no big deal. He acted as if it was a very big deal. The biggest deal there possibly could be. A deal worth the life of His infinitely valuable Son. God's glory, God's name is that important. But the death of Jesus was not just a demonstration of the importance of the glory of God. It was an expression of the glory of God. Last week we talked about how God's names reveal who He is and what He is like. And the name He prizes above every other name is Savior. Sending His Son to die for us. God saved us. You see, He is just. And that He couldn't just ignore the offenses to His glory. But He is also justifier. And that He saves us. He delighted to save us. He delighted to express His character, who He is, His glory, by saving us. And in doing that, He also demonstrated His most fundamental attribute. And in choosing not to wipe us out, but instead to send His Son to save us, God demonstrated and expressed that love. in the Son choosing willingly to go to the cross for us, He demonstrated His love in a way that no other possible act ever could. He showed His strength, His quality of character, the intensity of His love. He is that loving, that He can love even us who... As much as we have offended and insulted Him and disrespected and despised Him and hurt Him. seeing as He expressed that, that love, that quality of character, that glory, the Father's love for Him grew to new heights. It overflowed in a new way in all of eternity. Here was something new to love the Son even more for if that were possible. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may pick it up again. So he said this in anticipation of the explosion of pride and love the Father would feel. at This demonstration of the quality of the Son's character, of the glory of the Son. So you see, I don't think that the Father delighted in the pain of crushing the Son. He delighted in the glory that was shown by the Son choosing to bear the sins of humanity, choosing to save us at the supreme cost to Himself. And the Father delighted in the fruit of that act, Back in Isaiah 53:10, we were told, "Yahweh was delighted to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though God makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the delight of the Lord will prosper in his hand." You see, Jesus became our guilt offering, and guilt offerings are killed. So Jesus was dead, and therefore should not have had any descendants. But we are told that He prolonged His days. He rose from the dead. And as a result, He saw His offspring. By His death and resurrection, Jesus made it possible for us to become His offspring. Made it possible for us to become sons and daughters of God simply by accepting Him, accepting what He has done. Letting Him save us. John one twelve says, To as many as accept Him, to those that believe on His name, to those He gave the right to become children of God. See, all that's required of us is that we accept Him. That we trust, believe on His name. That is, we trust Him. To be all that His name declares Him to be. Beautiful, wonderful Savior. And as you do, as we do, we are reborn. His life comes into us. A life that is focused on God's glory. And our eyes begin to open. And we begin to to glimpse that glory, to see God's hand at work in our lives and in our, in our world and in, and in our relationships. We begin to see His beauty and His majesty, His goodness and His power at work in our lives. And we are brought to overflowing joy that has to be expressed in praise, that has to be expressed in giving our lives to live for that glory. See, that is God's desire, that is His delight, that we would be restored to our purpose of seeing Him as He is and as we see Him as He is, to be overflowing with admiration and awe and erupting into praise. It's what Isaiah meant there in, in verse 10 when he said, the delight of the Lord will prosper or increase, progress in His hand. You see, God's delight is multiplied as millions from every nation are restored to their purpose, seeing God, recognizing His beauty and His wisdom and His goodness, and expressing that in the way they live and in their praises. We who have been redeemed not only see the glory of God the Creator, but we see the glory of God the Redeemer. And our praise is given new depth and new reason, new feeling. God, who is Savior, God, who is love, has expressed Himself in a most astounding way, and we praise Him. Well, this then is why God delighted to crush the Son. He didn't delight in the pain and the horror. He delighted in what the death of Jesus revealed about the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father and what it produced in bringing many sons to glory, as the writer of Hebrew puts it.